will cost you, what discipleship has cost you, and what discipleship will continue to cost you is the second greatest expense in your entire life. It's cost you more money. It's cost you more time. It's cost you more relationships. It's cost you more hurts and habits and hangups and everything else than almost anything else except one thing. The first, the leading, the number one greatest expense in your life is the cost of non-discipleship. Your non-discipleship and mine, ours, our non-discipleship is the single greatest expense in our entire life. And guys, friends, ladies, gentlemen, it is not by a small margin. For those of you in the finance world who've ever contemplated the difference between a million dollars, which seems like a ton of money, and the difference between a million and a billion dollars is so exponentially different, they're not even on the same wavelength. The cost of your discipleship, number two, and the cost of your non-discipleship are so vastly and exponentially greater, it shouldn't even be in the same sentence. Your joy, your contentment, your fulfillment in life and marriage and friendship at work, your sense of purpose in the world, your, your feeling of belonging even in your own skin, let alone your own house or your neighborhood or your profession. These are directly and intimately tied to the cost with which you have expensed for discipleship and or non-discipleship. What is the single greatest expense in your life? I have a few more questions I'd love to explore uh, towards the end of our time together, uh, depending on how much time I save for us. Uh, But let's first go to Mark chapter 4. As we continue our series through Lent leading up to Easter, we pause as we do most years to just reacclimate our lives around the life and the teaching of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is this life he's called us to? And we land at Mark chapter 4, and it says in verse 1, once again, Jesus began teaching by Lake Shore. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat, and then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. He taught them by telling them stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, Jesus says, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across the field, some of the seed fell on a footpath. The birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly, but because the soil was shallow, but the the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seed fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted and grew and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. 
Then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. If you're an underliner in your Bible or your phone or you're a highlighter, underline and highlight, understand. We're going to see it at least four more times. Verse 10, later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around him, they asked him what the parables meant. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, out of your triune and perfect community, you created us in your image, designed to be like you, and you looked at us and you said we were really good. Sin sent it all sideways, and we've spent the rest of our days trying to find our way back to you. And then Jesus arrived on the scene and said, walk with me, this is your way back. So we commit ourselves to that simple walk in these moments. And in the words of King David, we pray, teach us your way, O Lord, so we might walk in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here Jesus is again, drawing really big crowds and teaching. And it ought not be lost on us that as he's drawing these really big crowds, and this crowd in particular He's drawing them and he's teaching a bunch of farmers who, listen, they don't farm to sell at the local farmer's market. They don't farm so they can hashtag it on Instagram and look like a hipster. They farm so they eat. These people know how to farm. These are not beginner farmers. These are not novices. And he stands in a boat with a big crowd around. And in this moment, it strikes Jesus. I got a big crowd here. A lot of people listening. You know what I should teach him about? Farming. Let me tell him how seed works. And he, and he walks through these four types of seed. Of course, in this really elementary way. And you got the four types, right? You got seed on a footpath. You got seed in shallow, rocky soil, sprouts quick, withers for lack of depth. You got thorny soil, it chokes out the plant. There's no grain. And then you have the fourth kind, fertile soil. Crops, right? 30, 60, 100 times cost of discipleship stuff. 30, 60, 100 times. Investment people, ROI, right? 30, 60, 100. You want good ROI, investment people? Maybe look at your IRA a little less and look at the cost of your discipleship because I can get you a hundred times in a week. I mean, I can't get you a hundred times, but you get the point, right? Now, to be clear, like the disciples wisely ask Jesus in verse 10, like, what does this all mean? Now, this is just your friend Stu talking, so take this for what it's worth, but I, I tend to think they pull him away to a quiet place to ask because they're somewhat confused. Like, you know, these people know how to farm, Jesus, right? Like, Maybe you were hiding out in the temple a bit too much in your teenage years and maybe not, you know, turning soil, but like these people don't need help on how to scatter seed and what happens when you scatter seed in different places. And Jesus in the latter verses goes on to explain these four soils, which is hugely important and a great gift to the listener, to both the the 12 disciples who are there with him and the others, the text says, who are there present when he explains it. And for the sake of time, I'm going to zip through it rather quickly because it's, it's right there in the text for you. There's not a, a lot for me to maybe expand on and add color commentary that you couldn't grab just by reading. But you have sort of the explanation of the components of the parable. The first component being the actual seed, the spreading of the seed. And Jesus says, 
This isn't like, you know, wild interpretation on my part. Jesus just says real plainly that the seed being scattered is God's word being spread. He says the footpath, the seed that falls on the footpath represents those who hear, but Satan steals away the message. Again, this isn't stew, hyperbole. This isn't my inter. This is exactly what Jesus says. Look at the text if you'd like. Rocky soil represents those who receive the truth of God's word with immediate joy, but they lack deep roots. And lacking those deep roots, the, the truth of God quickly withers when problems or the persecutions of life come, is what Jesus says. So the problems of life or the persecutions quickly cause the truth of God to wither in us. The third one is thorny soil. These are those who cannot even see the growth happening because their their sprout is being choked out. And Jesus says, crowd it out. And and again, this is Jesus, not Stu. By worry... And by the lure of wealth and by the desire of things. Worry, lure of wealth, and desire for things. Think about that thing you want right now. Think about it. You got one? I got seven. (laughs) Right? You know how much money's in your bank account? How much more do you want? Just a hundred more. Or a thousand more, maybe, or a million, I don't know. But it just, it's never enough, right? What are you worrying about? Some of you are saying, where do I start? Right? And then finally, the fertile soil. 30, 60, 100 multiples in fruit. He doesn't actually explain the fertile soil all that much, which is kind of interesting. But wait, there's more. A clear explanation here. From Jesus, it's a gift because it's not something he always does. Like some parables Jesus shares and he just kind of drops the bomb of a parable and then he walks away and people are left to figure it out for themselves or left with more questions than answers. But I, I think the question we may not be inclined to ask of ourselves is the why on certain areas of life. Is my soul a footpath or is it rocky soil? Is it thorny soil or is my soul fertile soil? And maybe uh, just before we get into this in greater depth, let me state what may be already obvious to the room, but let me at least say it out loud that um, your soul, my soul, our souls are rarely pure. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, oh, my soul is very fertile in all areas except that guy in traffic who I want to murder, right? You know, like our souls are just not always pure. We, we, we compartmentalize our souls in pretty complicated and intricate ways. And, and let me just say what may be obvious already, and if it's not, here's your glass shattery moment of the morning. In some regards, your soul is really thorny ground. And in some other areas, your soul is really rocky ground. In some areas... Your soul is a hardened footpath and God's truth has been stolen by the lies of Satan. Now in other areas, your soul is really fertile 
and you're seeing fruit. But we're never pure. And I don't mean pure in the like dirty pure. I mean pure in the sense of all one type. Like any farming area, there's like good soil and there's, it's just, you go in your backyard, right? And you, you see it. Maybe on issues of racial justice, your soul is a footpath. But maybe on issues of healing, you're really fertile. For some, on issues of politics, our soul is really rocky soil. For others, on issues of worry or wanting more wealth or longing for more things, our soul is really thorny ground and our joy is withering. And this, my friends, is part of, if not most of, what makes the cost of discipleship so high in our lives. Because for the most part, we're not intimately acquainted with the various soils in our own soul. We recognize fertile soil is the right answer. So I'm just going to, especially in church circles, I'm just going to portray really fertile soil. And in the areas where it's rocky or thorny, I'm just going to ignore that. Pay attention to what I want to pay attention to. And, and this is why some self-introspection is such a key part of the discipleship process. Because without deep introspection and without deep community with friends who ask really hard questions of us, we tend to isolate and we don't do proper introspection. This is why we do things like spiritual retreats. This is why we do things like Lent. This is why we do any of these spiritual practices to give ourselves a bit of a tour guide of our own souls. It's, it's what David is praying in Psalm 139 when he says in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I don't, I don't mean to be sarcastic here, but I want to drive home really clearly. This is not David inviting God to get to know David. This is David asking God to give him a tour of his own soul. God, search me and know me and point out anything in me that doesn't reveal your character. Okay, back to the text, because sandwiched in between the actual parable and the explanation of the parable is this really... Uh, brilliant and beautiful little section of Jesus's conversation, which I'd like to focus our remaining minutes on, if I could. It's often overlooked and raises some additional questions for us about our own discipleship, about our own walk with Jesus. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. We pick up kind of where we left off there in verse 10. Later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around. They asked him what the parables meant. He replied, this is Jesus, 
you are permitted to understand. If my count's right, that's the second understand for those who are keeping count. You're permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus now quoting Isaiah, which we'll dig into in a few minutes, he says, when they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. And then Jesus said to them, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand the other parables? As if to say, this is where we start. (laughs) You want to walk with me, Jesus says? This is where we begin. We begin with four soils. We begin with careful introspection of our own souls to honestly say, where is the soil in me rocky? Where is it thorny? Where is the soil fertile? And where have I permitted the enemy of my soul, Satan, to take the gift and run? And we we must raise a few other questions here, not must, but I think should raise a few other questions here of ourselves. Speaking in the first person, am I learning from the study of the life and teaching of Jesus? If the cost of discipleship is the second highest cost in our life, we ought ask ourselves the question, am I learning from the study of the life and teaching of Jesus? And I don't mean in like some, you know, broadly existential way. I mean like today. (laughs) I mean like yesterday. And I don't mean in some esoteric way either. I mean like real practice. Did you sit down yesterday in careful thought, in study, in reading, and learn more about Jesus? Did you give yourself to it? Whether it's woke up in the morning and did it or in the middle of the day or the night, I don't, you know, like there's no magic of the time of day. But, but am I, are we, did you give yourself on a regular basis to say, I want to learn more about you, Jesus. Or when we kicked off in Mark chapter four with the four soils, did you say, like I did when I studied the text last week, I know this one. This one will preach itself. Oh, he's doing, oh, Mark 4, I should have slept in today. I, four soils, I get it. I'm fertile soil. Look at my life, I'm awesome. <laughs> Some of us can't go five minutes without telling somebody how awesome we are. The second question that comes up that I think is helpful to us is, again, rooted in the text here from Isaiah, Am I understanding when I hear Jesus speak? Which presupposes something I know that I know is difficult for many of us, myself included, which is the presupposition that Jesus is speaking. (laughs) That God's talking to you. And the assumption here is that you're hearing him. So, So the challenge here is, interestingly enough, not to hear God speak, but to understand what he's saying, right? 
And at the same point, we, we just begin to do some introspective search of our own souls. When was the last time I heard God speak? And what did he say? And does it make sense? I, I, I don't want to... I don't want to wave a flag of holiness here. I, I just, I, I want to confess my own brokenness. I stood at the corner of my kitchen counter today and the Lord spoke to me at, I don't know what time it was, 7.30, 8 o'clock. Had another cup of coffee in my hand. I went, really? This is one of the, I knew it was God. That, okay, God. He's speaking to us all the time. Would I have been attentive to that if I wasn't looking at four souls? I don't know. Probably not. I probably would have just drank coffee and gone, that's a dumb idea. I'm not doing that. That'll cost me something. Kind of a stupid idea to that guy. Man, knock off the ideas. This is a glass-shattering moment for the disciples in that moment, and I believe it could be for us as well if we pause. Maybe I can illustrate this. Uh, Jen and I began dating in high school. And then we dated all through our four years of undergrad. And for those, uh, most of those undergrad years, uh, I lived in a house with five other guys, and it was a shamble. Um, it was gross, and it was filthy, and it was six dudes in a house. We uh, had no kitchen furniture because the kitchen was big enough, we figured out we could get a ping pong table in the kitchen. And so we literally had a ping pong table in the kitchen. And we played ping pong. And we played ping pong in various ways that I won't repeat here because my mother's watching. <laughs> I remember uh, as clear as day, one, I think it was daytime, so I don't remember it being dark. I remember Jen being over at the house and raising a question to me that I still remember to this day. And when she raised the question, we had been living in the house for at least months. But we may have been living in that house at that point for years. And she asked me a very simple question I'll never forget, and the question was this. Do you remember the last time you vacuumed in here? And now, b before I give you the answer, let me drive home the point free of any exaggeration. It wasn't glass-shattering moment for me because I was realizing we don't have a chore chart on the fridge whereas six guys trade off duties of vacuuming. No, and that would be a reasonable thing. And, and it wasn't because I realized, oh no, goodness, it's been a couple weeks since we vacuumed. We should probably do that. None of that occurred to me. Here was the glass shattering moment. It was in that moment and never prior to that moment that I realized we did not even own a vacuum. We had lived in this house for months, maybe years by that point. And in that moment, it occurred to me, we don't even own a vacuum. And that's like a normal thing to have. We've never vacuumed in here because we don't even own a vacuum. And I, and I confess to you what I presume is true of your spiritual life as well, that if we will be introspective and if we will pay attention to the hard questions of the friends of ours who are in this room, we may have to face down the realization at times that in our spiritual lives, we don't even own a vacuum. That we have been paying the price of non-discipleship 
in our worship of self or in our greed or in our harbored anger or in whatever in our vanity, in our addiction to sex or alcohol or drugs. We've been paying the price of non-discipleship for so long, we don't even know what discipleship would look like. You see, we've always looked at the four soils. If you've been around church any period of time and you read through the list and you go, oh, sweet, gets to the last one. I'm fertile soil. I received the story of Jesus. I got it. It's in me. Well, except for, you know, I hate people of that race. And um, except for, you know, I only vote this way, which is antithetical to the gospel. Except for, you know, I still harbor angry feelings towards my family of origin. Except for, but I'm fertile soil. Except for all those other ways. But we don't talk about those. We just talk about the thing where I'm really, I'm super generous though. Like, you know, if you come to my house, I'm gonna open a really nice bottle of wine. We're gonna eat great. So just focus on that. And I don't wanna beat the horse too dead here because um, I'd like you to come back because I like seeing you. <laughs> but there's three kinds of infertile soil and only one kind of fertile soil, which stands to reason. There's more corners and crevasses of our hearts that are not a safe harbor for the word of the Lord, where God's truth enters and is found unwelcome. And we can all wallow in the shame of our greed. We can lament our unrelenting worry. We can rebuke our frenetic pace, which just covers insecurity. We can even deny the power we have freely given to Satan to steal away God's truth. And all of that makes us feel a little better in the moment. Ah, I should really take care of my body, temple of the Holy Spirit. Ah. And, and that little bit of shame gives us a little bit of relief and it gives us the little bump of, yeah, I, you know, I stink, whatever. At least I'm keeping it real. But I'm really a jerk. But what might be the most powerful, what might be the salvation of our souls in a lot of ways, friends, is the reality that Everything would change if we diverted our attention from ourselves and instead gave ourselves fully to what Jesus did. What were you like, Jesus? How did you deal with your critics, Jesus? What did you do with impending doom, Jesus? How did how did you manage overwhelming expectation, Jesus? 
want to understand it. I don't want to, I don't want to just know the verse. No, that's good. That's helpful. But I, I want it to go so much deeper than just knowing Jesus talked about. I want, to, I want to know what you meant, Jesus. When that woman comes up and touches the hem of your garment and she's healed and somehow you knew the power had left you. I want to know what's going on there. And again, not so I can show off at Bible study or command the room around a fire, but I want to know so that it changes the way I live. Everything would change if we diverted our attention from ourselves and instead gave ourselves fully to what and the way in which Jesus did things. Everything would further change if we suspended our attention to the voice of our own insecurities and needs and wants for just a moment and really keyed in to pay attention to the voice of God. What are you saying, Jesus? And not just what are you saying, but what does it mean? Because that's what Isaiah was keying into here from God. You see, if we pause our greed, our worry, our frenetic pace, and gave in, we could see pretty clearly that the, the cost of non-discipleship in our lives is at such a sharp increase, we should probably find a lower-cost way to live life. And the only lower-cost way to live life is discipleship. And it's really expensive, let me promise you. Some of you know even better than I do, but discipleship's really expensive. So don't let anybody sell you this bill of goods that following Jesus is just, oh, happy-go-lucky, it's gonna be great. No, it's really hard. It's really expensive. It's gonna cost you all of your most tightly held views. That thing you believe so truly, so tightly about politics or the world or possession or freedom or whatever it is, you're gonna have to let it go to follow Jesus. You might even be right about it, and you have to let it go to follow Jesus. Dang it. God calls Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and maybe you're familiar, you know, the seraphim and the angels and the angel wings and all the six things and the touching and the call and the whole thing. And then Isaiah says, you know, God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me, I'll go. And the first assignment the Lord gives Isaiah when he says, send me, I'll, I'll be the one to go, is this very text. God tells Isaiah, okay, here's what you're going to go tell Israel. You're going to go tell Israel, I keep trying to get through to them and they don't listen. I keep trying to speak to them and they're not paying attention. I, I keep trying to help them to have my heart and they don't care about my heart. This, this is what he says. And, and then Isaiah is thinking, gosh, that's not the best first assignment, God. I mean, I, I presume that's what Isaiah is thinking. I don't know that's what he thought, but it's like, well, that's not the awesomest message for the new prophet. And he says to God, how long will this go on? Like, you know, he told him in Jeremiah 29, it would go exactly 60 years. So like, how long will this go on? And God goes, oh, you want an answer? Okay, here's your answer. Isaiah 6, 11 through 13. Here's the answer for how long the cost of non-discipleship will go on. That's what they're talking about. Not listening to God's voice not paying attention to his leading, not seeking to understand his way of life. He says, this is how long it will go on. Until their towns are empty and their houses are deserted and the whole country is a wasteland. 
until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. Now we sometimes read this and we go, wow, God's really angry and really vengeful. No, 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 no. This is the cost of non-discipleship. We lose everything. We're completely isolated. There's nothing left. That very text goes on to reference the coming Messiah at the very end by talking about the stump and what will come out of the stump, which is just this beautiful turning of the story that Jesus is on the way. Redemption is coming. A new way of life will emerge that is actually livable and sustainable. We can do it. We can live the way of Christ through the power of the Spirit. In the arrival of Jesus his life, his teaching, his voice. The life, teaching, and voice of Jesus will turn every soil in your life fertile. The only thing that is keeping the soil in your life rocky or thorny on that issue is a lack of Jesus. A lack of Jesus' life and teaching in it. The only thing that keeps me harboring the stuff I harbor is a lack of Jesus' teaching and life and voice into it. I've said to him, nope, this soil, I get to keep. I got fertile soil over there, Jesus. Stay in that little sandbox. Let me be so bold as I close to confess to you what I suspect is equally or at least in part true of your life. That my politics need discipleship. My money needs discipleship. My worry needs discipleship. My insecurities need discipleship. My anger needs discipleship. My body needs discipleship. And my fears need discipleship. Because I'm increasingly deciding that the cost of non-discipleship in my life in those areas is coming at too great an expense. And while the cost of that discipleship is great, and the fruit of that discipleship is 30, 60, and 100 times, the cost of non-discipleship is infinitely greater than the fruit of discipleship. The cost we are paying. So would you simply give yourself to the cost of discipleship? And, and maybe just try it as an experiment till Easter. We've got like three weeks-ish till Easter, depending on how you count. Though I think you only count a week one way, but we're, don't do numbers with me. Would you just give yourself to the cost of discipleship for the next couple of weeks? Would you commit each and every single day to set a time, to set aside some time, whether it's on the commute to work or whether it's first thing in the morning or last thing at night? And would you spend some moments in that time each day to reflect on what price did I pay today for my non-discipleship? And where did I see the fruit of my discipleship? 
Would you immerse yourself in a few minutes of the teachings and the life of Jesus over the next couple of weeks? Pick any of the four Gospels. Mark is the one we've been in, but John is a very popular one because you get probably the most diverse stories about Jesus in his life. You just give yourself a few minutes each day in the Gospels to just reacclimate yourself around what it was to walk with Jesus. Why they did the things they did. Why Jesus instructed them to live the way they lived. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, may your heart increasingly be our heart. And may even in these moments of commitment, may you find us to be willing participants in the cost of discipleship. We long to reflect you and for our lives to be fertile soil in as many ways as possible this side of heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to say-